When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, a brief history. Hi, I'm historian Christine Morgan, and welcome to A Brief History. On this episode, we continue the story of Henry VIII from the book London in the Time of Tudors by Sir Walter Besant. A quick word to listeners about this account. It was published in 1904 and makes several large statements which may not be true today. We have nearly 118 more years of history that Sir Walter was not able to observe. The course of history and the study of the Tudors in particular continually evolves and improves, so take our author at face value considering the time of publication. All that said, let's continue with our story. A singular story belongs to the arrival of the French embassy charged with negotiating the marriage of the king's infant daughter and the Dauphin. The ambassadors were escorted by a company of their own king's bodyguard and another of the English king's bodyguard. They were met at Blackheath by the Earl of Surrey, richly apparelled, and a hundred and sixty gentlemen. Four hundred archers followed. They were lodged in the merchants' houses, and they banqueted at Taylor's Hall. And then, says the historian, quote, the French hardermen opened their wares and made Taylor's Hall like to the pound of a mart. At this doing, many an Englishman grudged, but it availed not. In other words, a lot of French hucksters, under cover of the embassy, brought over smuggled goods and sold them in the Taylor's Hall at a lower price than the English makers could afford. The reception of the Emperor Charles by Henry in this year was as royally magnificent as even Henry himself could desire. The procession was like others of the same period and may be omitted. In 1524, a curious proclamation was made by the mayor. Evidently, papers or letters of importance had been lost. Quote, my lord the mayor straightly chargeth and commandeth on the king or sovereign lord's behalf that if any manner of person or persons that have found a hat with certain letters and other bills and writings therein enclosed, which letters been directed to our said sovereign from the parties of beyond the sea, let him or them bring the said hat, letters, and writings unto my said lord the mayor, in all the haste possible, and they shall be well rewarded for their labor, and that no manner of person keep the said hat, letters, or writings, nor none of them after this proclamation made, upon pain of death, and God save the king. End quote. Two cases, that of Sir George Minot and that of Paul Withapole, 
prove that the city offices were not at this time always regarded as desirable. In the former case, Sir George Minot, alderman and draper, he was elected 1523, mayor for the second time, and refused to serve. He was fined a thousand pounds, and it was ordained by the court alderman that anyone in future who should refuse to serve as mayor should be fined that amount. In this case, Minot was permitted to retire, probably on account of ill health. The second case, which happened in 1537, was that of Paul Withapol, merchant tailor. He was a man of some position in the city. He had been one of the commoners set to confer with Wolsey on the amicable loan. He attended the coronation banquet of Anne Boleyn, and he was afterwards MP for the city from 1529 to 1536. They elected him alderman for Farringdon within. For some reason, he was anxious not to serve, but rather than pay the fine, he got the king to interfere on his behalf. Such interference was clearly an infringement of the city liberties. The mayor and aldermen consulted Wolsey, who advised them to seek an interview with the king, then at Greenwich. They did this and went down to Greenwich. When they arrived, they were taken to the king's great chamber, where they waited till evening, when the king received them privately. What passed is not known, but in the end Withapol remained out of office for one year afterwards. At the end of that time, he was again elected alderman and was ordered to take office or to swear that his property did not amount to a thousand pounds. He refused and was committed to Newgate, the king no longer offering to help him. Three weeks later, he appeared before the court and offered to pay a fine of 40 pounds for three years' exemption from office. The court refused this offer and sent him back to prison. Three months later, Withapol must have been a very stubborn person. He again appeared before the court and was ordered to take up office at once or else swear that his property was not worth a thousand pounds. If he did not, he was to be fined in a sum to be assessed by the mayor, aldermen, and common council. He did not take office, and it is therefore tolerably certain that he paid a heavy fine. This brief interruption is brought to you by, well, me. Do you love Tudor's Dynasty? Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of amazing things that the everyday listener does not. Find out more by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty, and click Become a Patron for details. All right, back to the show. In the year 1529, sat the memorable court presided over by Cardinals Campeggio and Wolsey, which was to try the validity of Henry's marriage with his brother's widow. It was held in the Great Hall of the Dominican Friars. No more important case was ever tried in an English court of law, nor one which had a wider or deeper consequence. Upon this case depended the national faith, the nation's fidelity to the Pope, its continued adhesion to ecclesiastical order as it had developed during the 1500s. This trial belongs to the national history. In October of 1529, the king, enraged by the legate's delay in the marriage business, deprived Wolsey of the seals, 
seized his furniture and plate, and ordered him to leave London. In November of the same year, at a parliament held in the Palace of Bridewell, a bill was passed by the Lords disabling the Cardinal from being restored to his dignities. In February 1530, Wolsey was restored to his archbishopric, but without his palace, which the king kept for himself. He was summoned then to London on charge of treason, but he fell ill and died on the way. No Englishman before or after Wolsey has ever maintained so much state and splendor. No Englishman has ever affected the popular imagination so much as Cardinal Wolsey. Contemporary writers exhaust themselves in dwelling upon the more regal court kept up by this priest. It's like reading of the court of a great king. We must, however, remember that all this state was not the ostentation of the man, so much as first the glorification of the church and of the ecclesiastical dignities, and next a visible proof of the greatness of the king in having so rich a subject. Between 1527 and 1534, there were disputes on the subject of tithes and offerings to the clergy. At this time began the dissolution of the monasteries, to which we will return at a later time. So far as regards the relations between the king and the city, let us now return to the city itself. We have already seen that the intervals of freedom from plague were growing shorter. In this reign of 38 years, there was a return of the sweating sickness in 1518, a return of the plague, which lasted from 1519 to 1522, another appearance of the sweating sickness in 1528, and a final attack of the plague in 1543. It seems strange that no physician should have connected the frequency and violence of the disease with the foulness and narrowness of the streets. From the beginning of the 16th century to the Great Fire of 1666, London, crowded and confined, abounded with courts and slums of the worst possible kind. It swarmed with rogues and tramps and masterless men who lived as they could like swine. There were no great fires to cleanse the city. The condition of the ground, with its numberless cesspools, its narrow lanes into which, despite laws, everything was thrown, its frequent lay stalls, the refuse and remains of all the workshops, the putrefying blood of slaughtered beasts sinking into the earth, it must have been truly terrible had the people realized it, but they did not. Fluid matter sank into the earth and worked its wicked will unseen and unsuspected. The rains washed the surface. No man saw farther than the front of his own house. Therefore, when pestilence appeared among them, it did not creep, according to its ancient wont, from house to house, but it flew swiftly with wings outspread over street and lane and court." Steps were taken to protect and improve the medical profession. It was ordained in 1512 that no one should practice medicine or surgery within the city or for seven miles outside city walls without a license from the Bishop of London or the Dean of St. Paul's. That said license was only obtained by examination before the Bishop or the Dean 
by four of the faculty. Two years later, surgeons were exempted from serving on juries, bearing arms, or serving as constables. In 1519, the physicians obtained a charter of incorporation by which they were allowed a common seal to elect a president annually, to purchase and hold land, and to govern all persons practicing physic within seven miles of London. The College of Physicians Observe was at first only considered as one of the city companies. It had jurisdiction over London and seven miles round London, but no more. The positions of both physicians and surgeons were enormously improved by these acts of Parliament which occurred under the reign of Henry VIII. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of A Brief History, and I hope you'll join me next time when we discuss further these concepts of treason, heretic, and the many pivotal executions that occurred under the reign of Henry VIII. Until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.